Good to see you guys. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter, yes, chapter 1. And we're going to really take a run and start at tonight's study. So back up to verse 3. And we'll just read there. We won't study it again. All right. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? Well, the Greek translated in this is in the wrong gender to refer to salvation. And again, it's referring to our inheritance, which last week we said was actually Jesus. All that we are going to enjoy for eternity in Christ once we get to heaven. He said, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Notice that Peter links trials to our need as Christians. But what does that mean? What need is he talking about? Well, to answer that question, we need to know the goal of the Christian life in general. Look, once the Holy Spirit has wooed us to Jesus, we've opened our heart to him, we've accepted him, and we are saved, now the Holy Spirit shifts into what some have called growth mode. <laughs> growth mode. And now he's all about working in our lives to grow us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians 3.18, pivotal passage, says that very thing. This, then, is the goal, guys, of the Christian life, to become more and more like Jesus. In fact, in uh, uh, Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 28, you know, we know all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29, we don't typically quote because we all know verse 28, but this is his purpose, to conform us into the image of Christ. That's what God's all about. So that is the goal of the Christian life. To put it another way, the whole goal of the Christian life is maturity. Maturity. You can read Hebrews 5 verses 12 to 14, talking about the tragedy of those who are saved for years and years but never grow up. That's a tragedy. Now to accomplish this, to grow us up, make us more like Christ, the Holy Spirit will use trials, look, if need be, to mold and shape us into the likeness of of Jesus. Guys, this is the exact same thing James basically said. In fact, turn to James chapter 1 because these two passages are so similar. I like to kind of jump to James for a couple minutes and then back to Peter. Now, you remember this when we studied James, but James chapter 1, we'll just read verses 2 to 4 because he's essentially saying the same thing in different words. He said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect, in other words, mature, and complete, lacking nothing. Now, right up front, guys, right up front, James presents the difference between spiritual and carnal believers. And it comes down really to how they see trials and how they receive trials. 
at the core of it is really how each views life itself. Carnal Christians look at life from earth's perspective and view their Christianity as a vehicle for God to bless them. For these people, God exists to make them happy, you know, and bless them with all kinds of material treasures. And that's why they're all about laying up for themselves treasures on the earth. In contrast, mature spirit-filled Christians see life from an eternal perspective and view their Christian life as a way to lay up treasures for themselves in heaven by taking up their cross, denying themselves, and seeing this life as an opportunity to live for God, live for the Lord with all their heart right here on the earth. There are those that deny themselves, take up their crosses, follow Jesus. I must be about my Father's business, Jesus said. I do always those things that please the Father. This is the heart of a spirit-filled, mature child of God. They see things from a heavenly or an eternal perspective. Even as Paul said, we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. And that needs to be our vantage point. Uh, it's Ecclesiastes 3 where it says God has put eternity in our hearts. Well, yeah, but not for the carnal Christian. The carnal Christian is working and looking too much at this life. And of course, they're going to churches that are telling them it's all about drawing close to the Lord because he's going to give you big mansions and nice cars and so on and so It's all about material blessings. That's how they see things. But uh, for the mature, spirit-filled believer, we see things from heaven's vantage point, from eternity's perspective, and we are living up all about living for God right now on the earth, and someday we'll see those treasures that we've laid up through our service for Him. But guys, the first group, the carnal Christian, tends to see trials as a satanic plot to destroy their earthly happiness, and therefore believes that the devil needs to be rebuked when he attacks with trials. It's all of the devil. Okay, you don't receive that. You rebuke the devil. And that's how they view it. And uh, you rebuke the devil so you can go back to enjoying the blessings of God in your life. Whereas the second group, the mature Christian, sees trials as being necessary for growth and spiritual development. You know, part of God's plan to better equip them for service. Service. You know, James, who wants, and we studied James, we, we kept hitting this theme that James is all about writing this epistle so that carnal, immature Christians can become mature, spirit-filled believers. He desperately wants his readers, who are carnal, to grow up and to start living a, a mature life. He does that right up front in, in his epistle, right first few verses, by trying to get them to see their difficult circumstances as a positive thing, a blessing from God to grow their faith, and to better equip them for the work he is calling them to do. Now, guys, just as James tells us that trials are beneficial for our spiritual development, Peter is saying the same basic thing. Verse 6, once again, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And as we said, sometimes God determines that trials are necessary in a Christian's life. Warren Worsby said on this subject, and I quote, The phrase, if need be, indicates that there are special times when God knows that we need to go through trials. Sometimes trials discipline us when we have disobeyed God's will. Then he quotes Psalm 119, verse 67. At other times, trials prepare us for spiritual growth or even help to prevent us from sinning, quoting then 2 Corinthians 12, 1-9. He said, we do not always know the need being met, but we can trust God to know and to do what is best, end quote. 
And so guys, even though God will sometimes allow his kids to go through trials, it's important to once again understand that these trials that come upon us in the Christian life are under the total control of God. Again, Worsby said, and I quote, when it comes to trials, they do not last forever, but are for a season. When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If we rebel, he may have to reset the clock, but if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer one minute too long. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants to teach us and that we bring glory to him alone, end quote. Now listen, that's not to imply that trials are not a big deal. Like they're no big deal, right? And mature Christians simply, you know, take them in stride. Peter said in verse 6 that trials can really grieve us at times. And that Greek word is the same word used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was grieved, burdened, heavy of heart. In fact, so much so he, went, he at one point started to sweat drops of blood. That's the same Greek word, all right, used of the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane and the same Greek word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 of how believers mourn and grieve over the loss of loved ones. We're not talking about a small thing here. Surely some trials are relatively small. Some can be quite profound and can really shake us to our core. And to deny that our trials are, you know, painful. Some people say, oh, it doesn't bother me at all. Trials don't bother me, you know. Uh, some Christians, you know, they act super spiritual. As if, you know, like Superman, uh, they're impervious to the pain of trials. It just bounces off of them, right? Guys, that's disingenuous and probably contains spiritual pride. It's okay to be real. Paul said, when we lose a loved one, we sorrow, but not like others who have no hope. We're not stoic. Because you're a mature Christian doesn't mean we don't have any emotions, that we're fatalists. Uh, you know, we're, we're the stoics of Paul's day. Uh, whatever happens, no matter how difficult, well, just... That's the way it is. We just kind of, you know, it's not a sign of maturity or spirituality to act like when you go through a difficult crisis or a trial, that's no big deal. Years ago, there was a, a Calvary pastor in the area. In fact, I, I just heard recently he's no longer with us. He's no longer a pastor, but he's no longer with us physically either. And he was pastoring a church in the area, and um, his wife uh, had had some back problems and had surgery. And so she was uh, downstairs on the couch because she couldn't get up really, and she had to stay there and sleep there. And uh, so a good friend of hers from the church moved in with them to help her. Well, what had happened was often when she was downstairs on the couch sleeping, well, the pastor and her were having an affair up in one of the bedrooms. When it came to my attention, I confronted him about it. He came clean. Uh, he confessed it to his congregation. And we said, please come on over, you and your wife, so that we can kind of minister to you guys a little bit. I mean, it's, it's devastating. And, and we wanted to try to restore them. Well, they came one time, and uh, when we turned to the wife to find out how she was processing everything, just, it just had come to light. We're not talking months and months ago. We're talking a few days and we turned to her and said, how are you doing? In light of all this, she took the most, uh, it, it was ridiculous, really. Oh, I'm fine. 
Well, God's given me grace. I've forgiven him. It's, it's over. And my wife said, you know what? You're not being honest. You are not being honest right now. Because nobody who has gone through what you've gone through can just brush it off, uh, you know, like you're super spiritual. It doesn't affect me. I'm above it. That's disingenuous. There's a real epidemic of super spirituality in the body of Christ today. The most spiritual people I have ever met are not the ones who walk around acting or telling you they're so spiritual. They're just ordinary folks. And you know what? They don't pretend to be above pain or they just love the Lord, you know? But this idea that you have to put on this facade because it's unspiritual to, to show people that you're hurting. That's wrong. Years and years ago, I knew a, uh, an elder in the area here of another church. It wasn't at Calvary. And we were good friends. And the pastor, who was an older gentleman, uh, had, um, he had at least two grown daughters. He might have had other kids. And both of those grown daughters married had uh, two children apiece. You know, all really young. And uh, one day, one of the sisters is babysitting her niece and nephew and her two kids. And she went upstairs for just a, a few minutes, and they were, the kids were downstairs. And the, a dryer was gone, and it caught fire. And by the time she could get down there, she could only rescue one child of hers and one of her sisters. Two children died, and they were only, you should have seen these little, little caskets, they were only a couple years old. Well, of course, it was devastating. So they had to wake in the area here, and I went, and um, a couple of the people in that church, very high energy, uh, Word of Faith church, said, what we need to do is we need to sing praises of joy to God tonight. Now look, those kids are with the Lord. They're not having any trouble anymore. But you know what? The Bible says, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice be of the same mind toward one another. And when these two people, you know, I could see it on the elder's face. He knew that wasn't the right way to go. But it doesn't sound very spiritual to say, well, let's mourn tonight. But the scripture popped into my head out of Proverbs 25, verse 20. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather, and like vinegar on soda is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Look, trials can be very painful at times. But again, remember that they are under the total control of God who only allows them for his purposes and only long enough to accomplish those purposes in our lives. Peter kind of illustrated this truth by referring to the goldsmith, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire. Look, no goldsmith would deliberately waste the precious gold ore by continually heating it when it was already purified and ready for him to use for whatever he wanted to use it for. We've told you this numerous times. But the goldsmith or silversmith would take the gold or silver ore, put it into a pot, begin to heat it. Of course, as it began to melt, it began to release the impurities, the dross, and as they would flow to the top, he would keep scraping them off. And he would continue to do this until he could see his reflection in that pot of gold or silver. And then he knew it was ready to be used to fashion into beautiful and valuable articles of jewelry. Jewelry that others would wear that would bring him honor and glory 
as a master jeweler. Peter picked up on this and said, you know, in many ways, that's what the Lord does with our faith. He keeps it in the furnace of trials, but only long enough until he can see his reflection in our lives. Now, we'll never be there. We're always going to be growing. So you know what? Once you think you've, you've arrived somewhere, spiritually speaking, you're mature, God says, no, there's some more dross down there. I'm going to give you a little break for a while, but I'll be putting you back into the fire soon. All right, because we're going to need to get some, of that, some more of that impurity out of there. And believe me, there's stuff in us that we think we've conquered, that we have beaten. You know, that anger, that t- that's gone. God gave me victory that years ago. Yeah, we'll get on the expressway. I'd like to be in the back seat watching you there. Okay? No, no. A lot of stuff's still there. Even if we don't know it, God sees it. He knows that we need to be, you know, put through the fires of trials uh, some more. But he wants to use us for his glory. He wants to shape our lives into something that will bring him honor and glory. As the master craftsman he is. Again, verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith. And then he talks about it being tested by fire. And again, James says in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. See, mature believers can handle that. Immature carnal believers freak out because they're rebuking trials. They're trying to, it's all the devil, all right? As if God only wants them to know blue skies and sunshine and rose-covered paths and everything, you know. As if a little adversity, that's got to be from the devil because it's keeping me from having fun, that's the idea. But James says, look, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, he's using the same language as Peter. The testing of your faith, a word that means to be uh, purified like, uh, like, again, the gold or silver ore being put into the pot and the heated, melted, the impurities being released. That's the idea here. And what they're both saying is that when we get saved, we have faith. In fact, not only do we have saving faith, but God puts into our hearts a measure of faith, the Bible says. Now, this faith is brand new. It's precious, but it's raw faith all right mixed with a lot of junk that we bring in baggage we bring into our christianity so what the lord has to do is he's got to refine that faith before he can really use it for his glory and this is through trials where we learn to trust him how to handle uh, adversities uh, how to love enemies i mean you're, you know if you don't aren't subjected to some bad treatment by people how are you going to learn to love your enemies right so this is all allowed by god to again to um, purify our faith. It's never going to be completely pure, but you get the idea. It's a process. And um, trials accomplish this. Let me give you three main things that trials do with regard to our faith. First of all, they test our faith to determine if our faith is genuine. And if it's not, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, well, it's going to be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble, right? You subject paper, wood, uh, hay to fire, it's going to destroy it. So a lot of people who receive Christ, or so we think, but as soon as trials come, they're gone. Because they didn't sign up for trials. They signed up because some guy in a $1,200 suit told them, if you come to Christ, you'll have a big house, you'll have a nice car, your business will prosper, you'll be healthy and wealthy, and so on. And so that's why they come. And as soon as trials come, 
uh, and they have to suffer a little bit, well, often they're gone. So their faith wasn't genuine. For those who have true faith, trials can strengthen their faith just like steel when it's subjected to fire. The steel strengthens or tempers it. For those who have genuine faith, fiery trials can temper our faith, can strengthen our faith. And that's just a beautiful thing that happens. And then as we have been talking about, when it comes to trials, they will also purify the faith of true believers as God uses again the trials to burn away the impurities like the dross in the gold ore. So there are some benefits that James and Peter both knew. We can't get any other place than from trials. And again, the goal in all of this, guys, is that God can ultimately use each of us in greater ways for his glory. I love what Job 23 verse 10 says, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. And that is the whole idea. Lord, lead my life, not in the easiest paths, but lead my life in the right paths that will take me through adversity at times so that I can grow. Because the whole goal of my Christianity is to grow. I want to be like you. And I know that sometimes I can't do that or I won't ever be like you without some adversity, some trials. Now, guys, the statement by Peter that our faith being tested by fiery trials, listen, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a reference to the rapture. We'll have more to say about that next week. But the idea that, you know, we're all being tested and we're, you know, serving the Lord and we got to go through adversities and so on, that when Jesus finally comes for us, what he finds is somebody who is been purified, who is committed, who is, uh, has lived an honoring life to the Lord, and so on. All of this glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, a reference to when he comes for his church at the rapture. Guys, let me just say this, because Peter is talking here about living with fiery trials, knowing that they're accomplishing good in our lives, and ultimately, well, when Jesus comes for us at the rapture, the Bible says his rewards will be with him, so that's what we're looking for. Mature Christians are always looking ahead for what's going to happen when the Lord comes and the glory we're going to have and the rewards we're going to get. We send that up ahead, if you can put it that way, uh, our joy for a day when Jesus comes. I mean, God does give us a lot of joy in this, on, on this earth and in this life, but really that's, the goal is not that God would do things that make me happy all the time. It's that God would allow things to, to grow me up and use me in greater ways for his glory. But this is what Peter is talking about, keeping your eyes on the future and dealing with struggles right now, but keeping your eyes on the future when Jesus comes. Guys, one of the biggest problems with 21st century American Christianity is that too many Christians are consumed with the here and now and are not focusing on the life to come. And that's why they have a hard time dealing with trials properly. It's because they want God to bless them immediately and not someday when Jesus comes at the rapture with their rewards. This is why they have such a hard time with trials. They're not seeing their life from the proper vantage point. They're looking at life from earth's perspective. Read Ecclesiastes. It's all vanity and emptiness if you keep looking at life from earth's perspective. You've got to get above it and look down from eternity's perspective. But Paul tells us the only way for us to deal with adversity is to keep our eyes on heaven. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4, 
You all know it. Let me read it to you out of the NLT. 2 Corinthians 4, starting with verse 16. Paul said, that is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Listen. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, on the eternal. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see, but we see by faith, not with our eyes, well, these will last forever. Got to keep your eyes on. And that's very hard for American Christians because we have so much in the way of blessing. Very hard for us because we're so blessed uh, living in a country that has so many we don't have to pray god give me today my bread to eat we got money to buy our own bread and there's plenty of it or whatever else we need now that may change but right now we have so much it's hard to get your eyes on eternity longing for that when there's so much treasure on earth that we're wrapped up in but we have to keep our eyes on that which is not seen. And Peter nails it when he says in verse 8, Whom having not seen you love. And who's he talking about there? Jesus. Jesus. Whom having not seen you love. Now guys, the idea of being betrothed to Jesus and loving him even though we've never seen him reminds me of the story in Genesis 24 where Abraham sent his servant to a faraway land to get a bride for his son Isaac. Turn to Genesis 24. Boy, I love this story. I'm going to read uh, the first four verses, Genesis 24, 1 to 4. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now, guys, even though this servant that Abraham sends to get a bride for Isaac is unnamed, here in chapter 24, we know from chapter 15, verse 2, his name is Eliezer, whose name means, my God is help, or my God the helper. The reason he is unnamed in chapter 24 is because he's a type of the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus said never draws attention to himself, but only draws attention to the Son. So here we have Abraham as a type of God the Father, sending out Eliezer, a type of the Holy Spirit. Remember now, Jesus said in John 14, uh, he called the Holy Spirit the Comforter or the Helper. Called him God the Helper. But uh, Abraham, type of the Father, God the Father, sending out Eliezer, a type of the Holy Spirit, to get a bride for his son Isaac. Isaac being a type of the Son, Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, Eliezer goes to this far land. It takes him a couple months to get there. And he's got a bunch of guys with him, but it takes him a couple months to get there. He finally prays and runs into a gal named Rebecca. In Genesis 24, verse 16, the Holy Spirit emphasizes that Rebecca was a virgin. Makes it a point to say that. And that's because she's a type of the church. And in the New Testament, the church is called the virgin bride of Christ. 
Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole story. You can go back and get the uh, teachings out of Genesis because we went into this in detail. He goes home with her, meets her family, tells him, them who he is, who his master is. Of course, they all, they all know of Abraham. He's, he's legendary, okay? And um, he says, I've come here to gather a bride for my master's son Isaac, and I believe Rebecca is the one that uh, God has led me to to bring back uh, for Isaac. And you can read the story, and they, they celebrate and, uh, you know, throw a feast and everything else. And, and they want to keep keeping him there. He wants to get back now. He, his, God's prospered his ministry, his journey. He wants to get back home. But they keep, no, 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 come, you go tomorrow. You know, stay tonight, and they're eating and drinking and every day, right? Till finally he says, no, no, no more. I've got to go. And, uh, you know, so they turn to Rebecca and they ask her, will you go with this man? Now, guys, we cannot decide for our kids who is going to marry Jesus, who's going to be a Christian. Ultimately, they have to decide that for themselves. And Rebecca says, I will go. And when you read that story, the thing that really jumps off the page, listen to this now, listen. She is willing to go with a man she has just met, Eliezer, on a two-month journey to marry a man she has never seen, Isaac, to live in a country she has never known, never to return to her family again. That is the very definition of commitment and faith. And that is exactly the commitment all Christians make to their bridegroom, Jesus Christ, whom, not having seen, you love. Let's get practical for just a minute. Could I like to, you know, read between the lines a little bit, right? And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, what was it like going home those two months for Rebecca? Okay, you know, I was thinking about this, and I think as soon as she got on that camel, uh, and they started this two-month journey uh, back home, uh, Rebecca must have asked Eliezer a thousand questions about her bridegroom. Questions like, you know, tell me again, what does he look like? What kind of person is he? Is he kind and gentle or is he hard and uncaring? How will I know if he's going to love me? What if when I get there he doesn't want me? What if when I get there he doesn't find me attractive or think I'm good enough for him? What if after this long journey I'm disappointed because it's not everything you said it was going to be, Eliezer? What if when I get there, I'm not welcome in his father's house? And guys, these are all questions many Christians have wrestled with during their journey through this life home to meet their bridegroom. Is he going to love me? Am I good enough for him? Am I going to be welcome in the father's house? A lot of condemnation and guilt in the body of Christ. The devil has beat up a lot of Christians. I wish we would just read our Bibles. And know that, you know what? No, God does not choose perfect people. He chooses broken, battered, damaged sinners to make them his children, his bride. And it takes a while for him to work. But all the while the devil's saying, you're not worthy. You're not good enough. Why would he want you? And so on. And through it all, the Holy Spirit, God the Helper, comforts our hearts by assuring us of his love, right, and acceptance of us, and tells us of the glory of what it's going to be like when we finally get there. 
what is awaiting us? You have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And guys, all the way home, Eliezer is comforting Rebekah, telling her of the glory that awaits her as the bride of Isaac, and gives her gifts along the way, just like the Holy Spirit, our comforter, all along the journey, keeps assuring us of God's love for us, and gives us gifts until the day we receive our inheritance, which is the Lord Jesus himself. Now, notice once again the beginning of verse 8. Whom not having seen you, what? Love. The Greek word for love there is agape. Agape. And guys, the idea of loving Jesus with agape love takes us back to something that happened in Peter's life personally, where the Lord Jesus taught Peter some lessons about loving him with agape love. Now, Peter says, whom you haven't seen, yet you love. Well, Peter saw the Lord, right? Peter had seen the Lord. In fact, turn to John chapter 21. Gospel of John chapter 21. Now, let me just set it up. You all know the background, but the Lord Jesus has gone to the cross. He has resurrected by this time. And during the next 40 days, he kind of appears to his disciples here for a little bit, then disappears and appears over here to some others and so on. He hadn't appeared to the disciples for a while, I don't know, maybe a week or two. And so Peter and the guys are up in the Galilee. Okay, that's where they were from. That's where the Sea of Galilee is, and they, of course, were fishermen. But in uh, John 21, verse 1, we read, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and, the two, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we're going with you also. So Peter was a natural born leader. And um, it appears to me that Peter was giving up. Uh, he was kind of giving up and going back to his old life the life that Jesus had called them away from when he called them to become a fisher of men, right? When Peter said, I'm going fishing, I believe what Peter was really saying is, I'm going back to fishing. It's been an exciting three years, but it's over. Jesus is gone, and I'm just going to go back fishing. That's what I know. I'm going to go back to the old life. Well, they fished all night, you remember, and caught nothing. And morning it's sun is just starting to rise and still kind of that haze you know and that over the sea of galilee there's a mist and uh, as they look and they're i don't know how many uh, yards from shore they are but close enough to see that there is a, a small bluff and they're standing on this bluff is a stranger they can't see who it is and he yells out to them children have you caught any fish it's everybody who ever has gone fishing somebody has said that to you you know, maybe not children, but, hey, you caught anything? And they yelled back, no, we haven't caught anything. Fished all night, caught nothing. The stranger said to them, well, cast your net on the other side. They did immediately. It was so full with fish, the boat was starting to sink. 
Well, that's exactly what happened when Jesus first called these guys to follow him. Remember, Peter had fished all night and caught nothing, and the Lord said, cast your net on the other side, and all of a sudden, it was so full of fish, and Peter was freaked out. He was a fisherman. It doesn't happen like that. And Jesus said, you know what? You want to follow me? I'll make you fishers of, of, a fisher of men. Peter says, oh, I know who that is. It's the Lord. So Peter had been stripped of a shirt, you know, and because and, he was fishing, he just dives in and, and begins to swim back to shore. And uh, the other disciples row in, dragging this big catch of fish. I think it's uh, 153 fish, okay? And it would have brought a sizable amount of money at market. And uh, when they got there, verse 9, uh, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. You think the Lord needs our help to catch stuff? <laughs> Some people think the Lord needs us. I just watched a... Uh, heretic on youtube a well-known heretic espousing that god can't do anything unless we allow him to he has no jurisdiction on the earth only the people of god can tell god what he can do what he can't do god doesn't need my help he's god and he certainly didn't need the disciples to catch fish for him to cook he already had the coals going fire fish laid on the coals the whole scene, I believe, was set up by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord doesn't do anything just by coincidence, right? You remember it was early one morning, about a month or so earlier, where G Peter stood outside uh, the house of Caiaphas by the fire. Remember, it was a cold spring morning. He was standing out there because Jesus had been taken inside to Caiaphas's house uh, to be uh, cross-examined and interrogated. Peter was outside on the, in the courtyard, and he's standing around with the Roman soldiers, warming himself by the fire, and there he denies the Lord three times. So now it's early in the morning, and Jesus has got a fire going. And I can't help but believe when Peter saw that fire, time of day, Jesus there, I believe it brought everything back. Jesus planned the whole thing. He said in verse 15, beginning part so when they had eaten breakfast jesus said to simon peter simon son of jonah do you love me more than these we weren't there to see who what jesus was pointing to was he pointing to the boat and the nets in other words saying do you love me more than your chosen profession because you went back to it pretty quick do you love me more than this than these or he could have been pointing to the fish because that represented prosperity, success. Do you love me more than prosperity and success in business, Peter? Now, I personally think he was pointing to the other disciples because, you know, remember how the night before the cross, Jesus said to them before the, uh, excuse me, tonight you're all going to run, you're all going to forsake me. And Peter says, though these forsake you, I will never forsake you. And Jesus said, before the cock crows twice, you have denied me three times, Peter. Peter had verbalized his love for the Lord that night before the crucifixion and made Jesus a promise that he would be loyal to him no matter what, even if it meant his death. I would die with you before I would ever betray you. That's what he promised. And I believe he meant it. But 
As Jesus said earlier that night, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think Peter meant it with all his heart that he would lay down his life for Jesus rather than deny him. That's the problem. We put too much stock in our flesh, our own strength. This was part of Peter's problem. This was part of the reason God had to let Peter fall as hard uh, as he did. Because Peter was too self-confident, too self-reliant, that we'll never allow God to use us in ministry because we're depending too much on our own strength and not enough on his strength. But look, just because Peter failed the Lord didn't mean he didn't love him. Even as, or any more than we fail the Lord, doesn't mean that we don't love him either. It's just that the more we draw close to him, the more committed we're going to be to him, and the less effective Satan is going to be in taking us from him and getting us to do things that we don't want to do. I mean, we, I'll lay down my life for the Lord, and I believe you mean it. And yet, you might find yourself facing death and at that moment, well, you had better be walking close to the Lord. You remember why Peter denied the Lord three times. Remember, as he was walking to the house of Caiaphas with the Roman soldiers following Jesus. What does it say? He followed Jesus at a what? Distance. And that's why he failed the Lord. Because he wasn't staying close enough to the Lord for the Lord to give him the strength he needed. It's interesting that Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. I believe one for each of Peter's denials of Jesus. It's interesting, guys. I like to pick up on these little things. I don't know. Maybe you do too. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't ask Peter, Simon, are you sorry for what you did? Simon, will you promise never to do it again? Simon, have you learned your lesson? Now, that's probably what I would have said. But instead, Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. Why? Because the kind of loyalty and obedience the Lord wants from us, guys, listen. He wants based on love, not on legalistic duty. If you love me, keep my commandments. I have heard some Christians say the first thing from the Bible they taught their little children, little tiny kids. First thing they taught them from the Bible was the Ten Commandments. They got to know the commandments of God. Hey, you know what? I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing. They, at one point, they need to learn the Ten Commandments. But the first verses I taught my kids was the verses that talk about God's love. Because when I taught them the Ten Commandments, if I already had told them how much God loves them, then you know what? They would want to keep those commandments out of love, not out of some sense of duty and fear. See, God doesn't want us to obey him like that. He wants our obedience to be something because we love him. John 21, 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? The Greek word for love there that Jesus uses is agapao. It's a verb form of agape. Agape is a word that, that's usually used in the New Testament to speak of God's love. God's love. A love that's deep, fervent, and unconditional. So Jesus is asking Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me deeply, 
fervently and unconditionally. Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But here Peter responds with the Greek word phileo, which is a word that means friendship, love, affection. So when Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me deeply, passionately, and unconditionally? Peter responds by saying, yes, Lord, you know that I am fond of you. The question is, why didn't Peter respond with a higher word for love? I mean, didn't Peter really love Jesus deeply, fervently, and unconditionally? Well, I believe he did. I believe that all, with all his heart, Peter wanted to say to Jesus, yes, Lord, I do agape you. I do love you deeply, passionately, and unconditionally. So then why didn't he say that? He didn't because how could Peter say that to Jesus knowing he had denied the Lord three times? You ever found yourself in Peter's place? Where you've promised the Lord you weren't going to do that ever again, whatever it was, fill in the blank. You weren't going to ever watch that stuff on the internet again. You weren't going to ever have a drink again or take those drugs ever again. And you really meant it with all your heart and then you failed. You blew it. And in your heart you wanted with all your heart to say, Lord, I really do love you with all my heart. But you found it harder or impossible to say those words because you'd feel like a hypocrite. Even though Peter's love was imperfect, Jesus still commissions him into the ministry when he said to him, feed my lambs. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't, is not looking for perfect people to use for ministry? The weak, the foolish, the base, the nobodies. Those are the ones that he usually calls into ministry. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. So Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me deeply, fervently, and unconditionally? Peter responded, Yes, Lord, you know that I am fond of you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. The Greek word is poimen. We get the word pastor from that Greek word. It means the shepherd to watch over, protect, so on. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus said to Peter the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time Jesus used the word phileo. He said, Peter, are you fond of me? Here Jesus comes down to Peter's level, and it really devastates Peter. Jesus came down to Peter's level because Peter would not rise to the Lord's level. My pastor used to say that God will do for you the best he can do for you on whatever level you choose to live at spiritually. He doesn't castigate or condemn. He says, if you want to live way down here, if that's as far as you want to go in your relationship with me, I love you and I will do for you my very best on that level. If you want to live up here, then I will do my very best for you on that level. 
And guys, it's always a sad day when we bring the Lord down to our level rather than rising to his level, the level of total commitment. You know, this is true in human relationships, isn't it? I mean, if you fall in love with somebody, and maybe some of you have experienced this, I don't know. But uh, say you fell in love with somebody. I mean, you were really in love with this person. And your whole desire, the desire of your whole heart, was to enter into a deep, lifelong commitment with them. In other words, marriage. But when you proposed marriage to them, here's what you got in response. I just want to be friends. Now, if you've ever had that happen, I would imagine it crushed you. I would imagine it just devastated you. As well, it should have. But guys, that is what many Christians say to the Lord when he wants their relationship to go all the way into the deepest of all commitments, and they respond, Lord, I just want us to be friends. Guys, casual Christianity has become a real problem in the church today, where too many Christians just want to be friends with Jesus instead of making a full-on commitment to him as in marriage. How sad. When a person through carnality or compromise is satisfied living at a lower level in the spirit, a lower level in the relationship with Jesus, when he's always wanting to lift us higher. Because the higher we let him lift us, the more we commit ourselves to him, the more he can live our, his life through us, the more we can enjoy the fullness of our relationship with him. I mean, there are things that a lot of Christians never experience because they just never want to go far enough in their walk with God. I'm saved. That's all I care about. How sad. That you got one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world, and you're happy with that. Peter, now a broken man, says, Lord, you know all things. You do. I don't. You know that I'm fond of you. Peter is saying, guys, this is what I believe he's saying. Lord, you know, excuse me, Lord, I know my love for you isn't all that it should be. <laughs> but please, don't question whether I have any love for you at all. I know my actions don't show that I agape you, but you know everything there is to know, which includes the things in my heart. You know that I am at least fond of you. I mean, I do love you on some level. Don't take that away from me. Peter appeals to the Lord's omniscience, that he knows all things. And guys, you know what? We need to also, I'll read this to you. You don't have to turn to our 1 John 3.20. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So when we blow it, and the devil's right there pushing us to rebel or whatever. And when we blow it, the devil then begins to condemn us. And our heart condemns us because we have really messed up. We've done the very thing we told the Lord we would never do again. Remember 1 John 3.20. Even when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. He knows all things. He knows what's inside. He knows that we love him. And Jesus then said to Peter, feed my sheep. Listen, guys. Peter didn't feel. He didn't feel. He could say he truly loved Jesus deeply passionately and unconditionally jesus essentially responded peter true love is not expressed in feelings but in commitment obedience 
and then in service. If you truly love me, take care of my sheep. Take care of my sheep. I mean, we can say we love the Lord all day long. But he wants us to demonstrate our love by loving people and taking care of those around us. And that means different things for different people, whether you're a parent or you're a pastor or, you know, whatever that might be. Uh, you're a son or daughter taking care of elderly parents. Whatever you do for the least of these, my brethren, you do for me, Jesus said. We can all talk the talk. But, you know, what Jesus says is, look, agape love is all about unconditional sacrifice, surrender, and service. That's what I'm looking for. Peter, your feelings are not irrelevant or unimportant. They just shouldn't be supreme. I mean, Peter's feelings were not to get in the way of his responsibility in doing what the Lord called him to do. No, he didn't feel worthy. That's okay. Jesus is showing him none of us are worthy. It's not our worthiness that causes the Lord to say, I want to use you. It's his grace. I am what I am, Paul said, by the grace of God. It means getting what you don't deserve. And we don't deserve to serve the Lord. We don't deserve to be in his kingdom. We are all sinners saved by grace. In other words, guys, Peter was not to focus on how he felt about the Lord, but on his service for the Lord. You know, and we're done. Let me just say this. Too often, we only serve the Lord when we feel like it. When we feel like it. Our feelings become the motivation for service instead of our love. In the Christian life, guys, love, agape love, equals commitment, which equals service, which then brings feelings, not the other way around. So often we're waiting to feel like loving somebody before we actually love them. Or we're waiting to feel like serving the Lord before we actually serve Him. You know, when Jesus said, love your enemies, He wasn't saying, you know, have feelings for them and then do nice things for them. He was saying, if an enemy has a need, meet the need. That's how you love them. And guess what? When you start loving somebody like that, even an enemy by meeting needs, it does something in your heart. So, and eventually feelings start to come. I've experienced this with people I didn't really like at all. They were enemies. This is going back when I first got saved. And yet I knew God was saying, you need to love that person. He doesn't know me. You do. And so I, you know, work with this guy. and One of those guys that just would irritate you just has a sarcastic way about him. Everything was a sarcastic remark. Ooh, I just wanted to <laughs> belt this guy. But God says, you start loving him. And so when he came in, I would go out of my way to be helpful, to serve him in any way I could. And you know what? We never became best friends, but we did become friends. And I, I can tell you honestly that as I began to serve him and to do out of obedience to what God said, treat this guy the way the Lord wanted me to, I began to have feelings for him. I began to pray for him. Look, guys, it's true that service without love is meaningless. 
It's true that service without love is meaningless. It's just robotic. But love without service is also meaningless. Love without service is also meaningless. And Jesus said in the Revelation 2 with the church of Ephesus, he said, look, you have service like crazy. You guys are, are serving yourselves. I mean, you're, you're ready to drop over. You're serving to the point of exhaustion, but you've left your first love. Thank you for the service. But what I want is love. You know, all that service without love is meaningless to the Lord. Remember this, John 3.16, For God so loved agapao, the world. And what did he do? He served it, how? By giving the most incredible, precious thing he had, his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son the ultimate act of love, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, you know, Peter, he was not one who could say, whom you have not seen yet you love. He had seen the Lord. And he knew firsthand what it was like to fail the Lord, to deny the Lord. Yet how the Lord sought him out, how the Lord restored him. And from that moment on, Peter learned an important lesson about agape love. And hopefully we will take that lesson with us as well that um, I do for others because of what God has done for me. I love him because he first loved me, and I want to show that love now to him by helping others made in his image. And uh, it's all about unconditional, selfless, sacrificial love. That's what agape love is all about. So may God give us grace. In these last days, guys, when there's so much division in our country like I've never seen in my entire life, you can't talk to people about anything. Everyone's got a side on some issue. And you can't even talk to them. You disagree, you're the enemy. Battle lines are drawn. We are not to get swept into that. We are to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. This is what the Lord wants from us. And when he is revealed, when he appears at the rapture, Hopefully he'll see a group of people that were not perfect, but certainly wanted to represent him to this world properly, stayed close to him, drew every day from the Spirit, the love of God, and gave it to others around us. May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do love you with all our hearts, even though we've never seen you. Like Rebecca, we have agreed to go along with the Helper, the Holy Spirit, on this journey all the way to our home in heaven to meet our bridegroom. And we doubt sometimes whether we're worthy. We doubt sometimes if you're going to really receive us into the Father's house. We shouldn't. You've promised us you will. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who keeps encouraging our hearts, keeps reassuring us that we were chosen to be his bride before the foundation of the world the Holy Spirit who gives us gifts along the way to encourage us and to use in our ministries for you. So, Lord, thank you for your great love, your agape love. Give us that love, Lord, for others. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. 
We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.